All right, we are back. It is Tuesday morning. Now, I have a confession to make. So, you know, slight confession here. Greg and I are in the same clothes, obviously. Um, we haven't kept held Greg captive here um, to do these live interviews throughout this week. Greg has a real job. He has to, he teaches at Southern Seminary. Um, but we are recording all of these and going to be airing them um, this week. So once again, Greg, thanks for being back with us. Absolutely. Glad to be joining you on Tuesday as well. Uh, Tuesday, yes. <laughs> the Sunday that is now Tuesday. Um, we left off talking last time about um, this principle of sola scriptura and you really talking about um, that, that the, the defining issue of the Reformation was really kind of twofold. I mean, it was certainly justification by faith. Okay. But it was, it was even, I, I wouldn't say more so, but even, but equally so this view of authority and who, what is the ultimate authority um, in the life of a believer? Is it the, is it the church and tradition or is it scripture? Um, maybe just for those who weren't with us yesterday, just give us a, just a small recap on that issue. So the authority structure in the Roman Catholic Church is like a three-legged stool, scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. So scripture, Protestants, and Catholics would agree about that, even though the Roman Catholic Old Testament has more books in it than does the Protestant Bible. The Protestant Old Testament does not have these apocryphal writings in it. But what we do share this commonality of scripture being an authority. For the Roman Catholics, they had tradition as another authority, another part of divine revelation. So Jesus' teachings that he communicated orally to the apostles, who in turn communicated those teachings orally to their successors, mm -hmm. the bishops, which then that teaching continues to be uh, nurtured and fostered in the church today through Francis and the rest of the bishops. So we got scripture, we got tradition. The magisterium then is the teaching office, Pope Francis and the bishops, who have the authority and the right to determine what belongs in scripture and its official interpretation and what is tradition and how to interpret tradition. Three-legged stool. No, one of the things that you mentioned in your in your book, and guys, I just want to totally commend this book to you: 40 Questions About Roman Catholicism. Um, super accessible, Greg. You explained this really well. Thanks. You talk about with the magisterium or the bishops and the Pope, the College of Bishops, this idea of apostolic succession. succession. Okay. Mm -hmm. So maybe explain for folks what is why is the doctrine of apostolic succession so important in Roman Catholicism? And, and what is it and how does this tie into how they would view Protestantism? Uh, the doctrine of apostolic succession is based on Matthew 16, 13 to 20. This is Peter's confession of the identity of Jesus and Jesus's response, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Mm. The Roman Catholic Church interprets this as Jesus delegating his authority, particularly to Peter, but to the rest of the apostles, so that they have the power to uh, forgive sin or to hold people in their sins or excommunicate people and this is important because it then raises the authority of the Bishop of Rome, who is the Pope, and the bishops who are with him in the magisterium. Uh, they are the ones who exercise the authority of Jesus Christ on earth. The Pope is actually considered the vicar 
or the earthly representative of Jesus, when these bishops, when priests uh, baptize, when they confirm, when they celebrate the Eucharist, uh, they are the ones doing it, but ultimately it's Jesus Christ who is baptizing or confirming. So there's this apostolic succession which enables the Pope and the bishops uh, with him to exercise this authority of Jesus Christ to rule, sanctify, and teach the Roman Catholic faithful. So a couple of follow-up questions to this. How would a Roman Catholic then view what you mentioned yesterday, which at different points in time in the history of the church, apostolic succession was not very clear. Uh, there was more than one pope, or, or not even to mention for that, for hundreds of years there wasn't a pope. So, so how would a Roman Catholic theologian think about that? They would make a distinction between uh, the officer and the office, that is the pope and the papacy. Yes, there have been bad popes. Yes, there have been times when there have been several popes. Still, throughout its history, the church has uh, believed and held that there is one papacy. So even though the pope may be a scoundrel, even though there may be several claimants to be pope, the papacy has always existed. It must exist because the Roman Catholic Church cannot exist without the papacy. Uh, they're, they're, it's that essential, and this is why, again, apostolic succession is so important. If you don't have uh, the papacy, which exercises the delegated authority of Jesus Christ, you can't have a church. You can't have the Roman Catholic Church. So with, they would say then, at those times there were multiple claims to, the, to, to, the, to being the pope, mm -hmm. that the true papacy was still residing in Rome. Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> they would just say the papacy, the office, always existed, right? Okay. Um, even if there's even if there's controversy about who's even if there's it. exactly. Okay. Yeah. And so, like like today, there's great con controversy about Francis. You know, the yeah. conservatives don't like him. The right. li more liberals or pro progressives like him. Yeah. Right. So there's debate about this pope and and what he's trying to do, but still the papacy exists whether Francis is who he is or, or whatever people feel about him. That's right. Okay. So when Luther was at Worms and yep. he was asked to recant his writings, yep. um, it was obviously the papacy, the Pope, the, who were in his, in his bishops who were asked, who were putting this on Luther. Yeah. So I think Luther, I read, you know, was greatly disappointed that he wasn't actually going to be able to debate these mm -hmm. things. It was just, he was, is this idea that he was asked to recant without really any disputation around the scriptures themselves, does this get back to this idea that whatever the papacy says the scriptures mean, that's what they mean? Exactly. And okay. so at Worms, he's asked to recant his wrong biblical interpretations, his wrong developing theology, mm -hmm. his wrong conscience, uh, and, and and so basically the office of the papacy said, you can't hold these views, you can't interpret the Bible this way, you can't have an easy conscience thinking that you're in the right, and, and so we, we, as the office of the papacy, we demand that you repudiate what you believe, okay. and he would not. Right. He's standing up against apostolic succession. He's standing up against the office of the papacy. 
because he would clearly see things that the papacy is advocating are contrary to scripture. He would say, you know, the Pope has erred, right? The, the, the right. papacy has misinterpreted the Bible. So um, when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, Matthew 4, 17, uh, Luther would say there's a misunderstanding of this. Uh, Jesus did not say in Latin, penitentium agite, do penance, right. go to the sacrament of penance. Jesus did not uh, say that. It's a misinterpretation mm -hmm. of Jesus' command by the papacy. Rather, Jesus said, repent, turn your whole life, your heart around, go in a different direction. So we would say the Pope, the papacy, misinterpreted the Bible at that point, misinterpreted Jesus' exhortation to his people. And the Roman Catholic view is that it's impossible for the papacy to misinterpret the Bible. It's impossible because the Holy Spirit grants to the papacy the gift of infallibility uh, when the papacy makes these kinds of proclamations. Okay, so a Roman Catholic would obviously view the subsequent events of the Reformation as destroying the unity of the church. Yeah. So clearly there was many historical movements, whether it was the Anabaptist or Reformed or Lutheran and on and on and on, um, Baptist, Presbyterian, they would look at that and say that there's been a division in the church. A Protestant would look at that and say what? Um, there was nothing, there is nothing necessary uh, with the Protestant movement such that it would necessarily have these kinds of divisions. Those mm -hmm. were more accidental developments in history. We lament them, we bemoan them, mm -hmm. but we say th this isn't tied necessarily to what Protestantism is. Okay. And then we would say, okay, you charge us with a lot of disunity, all these different denominations, but if you actually look at the Roman Catholic Church and its theology, mm -hmm. it is a big tent going from extreme conservatism, opus Dei, people still flagellating themselves to earn God's favor, all the way to extreme progressive theologians, open theists and uh, a liberation theology. Mm -hmm. So actually, the Catholic Church in its theology has as broad a spectrum and manifestations as does Protestantism. So the Roman Catholic Church, though it might present itself as a monolithic movement with a, a unified doctrine, uh, that's quite theoretical, and it's actually not the case. Yes, and so as a Protestant, um, I mean, on one hand, even as Protestants, we might look at the landscape, evangelical mm -hmm. landscape, and say there's so many denominations, there's so, many, there's so much quote-unquote division. Is that always a bad thing? Um, how should we think about that? Division is not always a bad thing when you're dividing from heretical elements within the church. Okay. That should take place. Okay. We do lament that among true churches, right, sound Orthodox churches, that there are these divisions. Mm -hmm. um, we do um, receive Jesus's prayer in John 17 for unity. We do receive Paul's exhortation in Ephesians 4, 3, we should maintain the unity of the church and the bond of peace. We, we, we receive this, and so we work for unity, but we realize that in the uh, already, not yet, mm -hmm. in the here and not now, uh, that 
that, that these kinds of divisions will probably always be with us. And as you preach the, on Sunday, uh, Lord Jesus, come yeah. and, and resolve Amen. this, because it's not going to happen until he comes. That's right. Well, Greg, this has been um, fascinating, educational, enlightening. And so what we want to do tomorrow is I want to start coming back to some of the specific, we, we've embedded some of those questions that you had from Saturday and in, already into our discussions, but I want to kind of do a little pastoral potpourri, so to speak, and um, kind of throw out kind of popcorn style some of the things that you were specifically asking. And so, Greg, will you join us tomorrow? Absolutely. Okay. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.